All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you and looking forward to opening God's Word together with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us and be with us this morning. And we're just grateful to have you, and we hope that we are able to help you connect with the community here in whatever ways that you'd like to be connected. And so we'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm excited about continuing to walk through our, uh, our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and for the past few weeks, we've actually been in chapter 15 of that book, of that letter that, that's written by the Apostle Paul to this struggling church in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. And, and the reason we kind of jumped ahead to chapter 15, we had been in kind of right around chapter 5 or so. The reason why we jumped ahead is because the whole all of chapter 15 is really about the reality of Jesus' resurrection and about the implications for our lives and for eternity that stem from Jesus' resurrection. So what better time to address those things than right around Easter? And so we jumped ahead. Don't worry for those of you who are hoping that we'd get to all the fun stuff in the middle of 1 Corinthians. Don't worry. We'll get back there, okay? Um, but uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, or if you have been gone, let me just catch you up a little bit on our study of chapter 15 before we end up wrapping it up this morning uh, as we study. So what we saw in the first few verses of chapter 15 was, was this foundational claim for the Christian faith is that, is that, uh, that Jesus' resurrection was not merely a spiritual reality, but it in fact was a historical, physical, actual reality. It really did happen. See, Christianity is not built on good teaching, it's not built on moral principles, it's not built on philosophical ideals. You see, Christianity is built on the claim that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that three days later, he rose from the, day, the, from the dead, conquering Satan and sin and death, that he wasn't resuscitated, that he wasn't reincarnated, that he was resurrected. We don't have time this morning to go through all the supporting evidence for why we can really have a, a, a high level of confidence in the trustworthiness of that claim, but if you miss it, I'd really encourage you to go find the message that, we, that I preached on Easter. I hope that would encourage your heart and your mind as we think about the confidence that we have in the resurrection. But suffice it to say, Paul and many others were not only convinced that Jesus actually physically rose from death, but that the whole message of the gospel and therefore the entire Christian faith hinges on that reality. Uh, he says in verses 12 through 19 that if Jesus didn't actually physically rise from death, that his preaching is worthless and so is our faith. That everyone who died believing in Jesus is just dead and that's the end. And that there's no reason for us to have any hope beyond the grave. Sin wins, death wins, it all wins, it's done. And we are just pitiful fools who are wasting our time. And he's driving home this point about the, the crucial importance of the reality of Jesus' resurrection for everything because there were some in the Corinthian church who were, be, who were doubting that Jesus or anyone else for that matter could actually rise from death. You see, not unlike our own culture, the, the very idea of a physical resurrection just kind of seemed like crazy. And for them, besides the reality, was why would you even want that to happen anyways? See, in the Greco-Roman world, they lived with this dualistic mindset, right, where there, there was a, the soul and the body, and the, they were two totally kind of separate things, and, and that the body was just a problem to get solved or finally to be escaped at death, and the soul is the only thing that mattered. It's the only thing that lasted. 
And so the idea that you would have a physical resurrected body didn't really sound like good news to the Corinthians in the Greco-Roman world. And yet here Paul is insisting not only that the resurrection is good news, but that if you don't have the physical resurrection of Jesus and yourself, then you don't have anything. It's like the bottom piece on the Jenga tower. You take it out, everything else falls. See, but it wasn't just Jesus' past physical resurrection that Paul was so sure of. We saw last week how it's the future bodily resurrection of all those who by faith belong to him that Paul is reminding these Corinthian believers of enough as well. We saw how Jesus' resurrection, it's both the model and the means for our own future resurrection. You see, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, it's the model, it's the preview of what our own resurrection will one day be like. You see, what God did that first Easter morning was not meant to be this one-time, never-repeated occurrence, but instead was the, the first fruits of a greater resurrection harvest yet to come. Paul says that Jesus was the first fruits of God's resurrection plan, and it's, it's through the resurrection that we get a preview of God's ultimate plans for renewal and for redemption, for restoration, for everything that belongs to him. We saw as well that Jesus' resurrection, it wasn't just the model for our own, but it was also the means by which our resurrection was possible in the first place. You see, it's Christ's death and his resurrection that overturns the curse of sin and, and, and that through belonging to him, we have a sure and a confident hope from rising from death just as he did. It's not our performance. It's not our good work that secures our resurrection hope. It's, it's Jesus' work on our behalf. We'll see again this morning that it's, it's his victory over Satan and sin and death that gives us the security and the hope that we have for a future resurrection. You see, and because Jesus' resurrection is not just the model, but also the means for our own, that means we have this unshakable hope that one day, just as Jesus defeated death, so will we by faith in him. But the question remained, what... What's so important about the reality of Jesus' resurrection and our own being bodily, being physical? I mean, why do we need these bodies anyways? I joked last week about how I'd be fine leaving this one in the grave. And, uh, but, but again, that's not the point. You see, we saw how from the very beginning of the Bible, it's clear that the, the point of creation is to reveal and to reflect the creator God and, in its beauty and its intricacy, in its vastness, in its wondrousness. The creation, it reveals and reflects something about the creator God. And in so doing, it brings him glory. That's especially true of humanity. We, we recounted last week how Genesis 1 tells us that humanity is made in God's image. Unlike any other part of creation, humanity is deliberately, uniquely, the Bible says, made in the image of God. You see, you, were, you and I were made to be God's image-bearing glory reflectors. And the fact that God created a physical reality for that to take place means that our, our bodies are an integral part of our very identity and purpose as being God's image bearers, both now and for eternity. You see, God's ultimate intention in the beginning and in the future was never that we would just kind of be disembodied souls floating around, but rather that we would live forever with him as whole persons as body and soul together. And so God's plan with the gospel is never about escaping or abandoning this world or our bodies, but instead was about rescuing them and redeeming them, about, about returning it to all that he made and intended it to be. 
You see, and that's where, and that leads us where we're heading this morning. You see, today what we're going to see is, is what those redeemed, renewed, restored, resurrected bodies will be like. And as we study, what we're going to see is that our bodily resurrection will be an inherently a transformational reality. We're going to see the way in which our bodies are transformed. We're going to see the, the power by which they are transformed. And we're going to see as well how the promise of that future transformation actually impacts and transforms our lives today. Like I mentioned last week, there is so much more in these verses than we have time to get to this morning. And uh, I just want to say again up front, if you have questions about this sermon or about any others or about the passages that we read, I would just encourage you, I would love to talk through that with you. You can ask me questions, we can process things together. I do not always have all the answers, I wish I did, but I certainly have time to honor your questions and to help you process through those things. And so if there are questions that arise from our study this morning uh, in our passage that we don't get to, uh, man, I would love to talk through that with you. So find me and I'd love to be able to sit down with you and process that. So um, Let's pray. With, that, with those things in mind, let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. We are certainly going to need it. So, Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we're just grateful that you would allow us to gather together and that you would uh, keep your word for us so that, so that in it we might know you and have hope because of you. And so, God, we just come this morning, uh, as we do every week, uh, utterly dependent on you. God, I don't have what I need to be able to preach and teach rightly and with power apart from you. I do not have what I need. And neither do the rest of us have the ability to respond rightly to your word, to hear it as truth and to see it as good news and to respond and act in accordance with it. Jesus, we can't do any of that without you doing it in us, enabling that to be possible in us. And so God, we ask humbly as we gather to study your word this morning, would you enable us to be to respond rightly to your word? Would you enable our time as we study to be good news that transforms our realities now, not just one day? God, we need you for that, and so we humbly ask that you would do it, God, not only for our good, but so that you might be glorified as we live lives that honor and reflect you. So to that end, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're wrapping up the last section of our chapter in this morning. Paul begins this way in verse 35. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow, do, uh, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and each kind of seed gives its own body. And not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, and animals have another, and birds and fish have another. And there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And the stars differ from star to star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. For the body that is sown perishable 
It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, yet it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. For if there's a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus there, became a life-giving spirit. You see, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. And the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I I declare to you, brothers and sisters, That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery, for we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. For in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As we examine Paul's words this morning, as he concludes our our chapter 15, the the question at hand, or really the first question at hand that he's trying to address is is simply this. He's, He's answering the question, what will our resurrected bodies be like? The Corinthians are confused about that. They don't understand it, and, they, and she's trying to help them understand what will our resurrected bodies be like. And, and the essence of Paul's response is that our new resurrection bodies will not merely be resuscitated, reassembled versions of our current bodies, rather that they will be radically transformed versions of our current bodies. Verse 51, Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That's a language he and Jesus and others use for, for death. We will not all sleep. We will not all die. He says, but we will all be changed. For in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul's saying that whether you have died or whether you are still alive, when Jesus comes back as he promised he would to usher in his kingdom once and for all, that our bodies will be changed. They will be transformed. 
And the obvious question is, how will they be changed, right? In what way will they be transformed? And while Paul does not give us the level of clarity I'm sure we all want, I sure, I'm sure it's not the level of clarity my wife wants, for sure, she's a details person, he, he does lay out for us this, uh, the fundamental big picture answer to that question. And he begins in verse 37 by comparing this change to the sprouting of a seed, right? He says a seed goes into the ground and it looks one way, but when it, but when it sprouts it, it, it's into something, it looks completely different. In, in a way, a, a seed, it undergoes kind of like a burial and then a transformation, right? You, you put it in the ground and you bury it and, and then it is transformed, you see? And, and the DNA is the same. But the transformation is obvious. You see, and the point that Paul's trying to make about the, the nature of our resurrection bodies is that it will be a transformational one, and, and inherent in transformation is that there is a level of continuity. You see, a tree does not look like an acorn, and yet they are the same. They come from the same thing. A butterfly does not look like a caterpillar, but it indeed has a physical continuity with it. One commentator puts it this way, our metamorphosis may involve an even more dramatic change in what we are like, and we cannot predict what it will be like any more than we can predict whether some unfamiliar seed will grow into a tree or a flower, but we will be changed. And so the transformed nature of our resurrection bodies will inherently mean that while there will be fundamental root-level change, there will also be a continuity. Just as there's a continuity between a seed and a plant, so there will be a continuity between the present body and our resurrection bodies. And it's not that we'll get all together different bodies, but that our own will be transformed from one thing into the next. And we'll get more into this later as we, as we finish our study this, later this morning. But, but that continuity, it really matters because it means that what we do in these bodies, in the ones that we have now, it means that it really matters. It matters for eternity, what we do in these bodies now. But that's not all that Paul tells us about, about the way our bodies will be transformed. He goes on in verse 42 through 44 to lay out four qualitative ways that our resurrection bodies will be transformed when Jesus returns. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, yet raised in power. It's sown a natural body, raised a spiritual one. You see, the first and most foundational way that our bodies will be transformed is that they will go from being perishable to being imperishable. Paul echoes this again in verse 53 when he says that the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. We do everything we can to try to avoid death. We, we exercise, we take vitamins, we use anti-aging cream, you go to the doctor, right? You even eat kale, which I think we can all agree is a direct result of sin and will not be in heaven, right? Like that stuff, there, it's just, it's not good, right? It's just, it isn't. But, but despite all the effort and the energy and the money and the technology and the sacrifices that we make to try to avoid or delay death, you see, death is a reality that always, eventually comes to every one of us. And we can put it off for a while, and we can delay it for a while, and we can avoid thinking about it for a while or talking about it for a while. We can avoid the warning signs of it for a while. 
but these earthly bodies in them, we cannot escape it altogether. Death is a curse that comes to everyone. But Paul says that is not how it will be in the end. See, that will all change with our new resurrection bodies. See, in describing the transformed nature of our resurrection bodies as imperishable and immortal, Paul is saying not only that unlike our current bodies, our new ones won't wear out, they won't decay, they won't get old, they won't break down. He says not only that, but indeed they will not and cannot die. I don't know about you, but I needed that good news this week. We live in a world that is marred by the horrific reality of death. And death is ugly and it is, it is painful and it is brutal and terrible. And I have wept over that reality this week. But Paul says that is not how it will be forever. He says one day, the very idea of death, let alone the reality of it, will merely be but a distant memory. There will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more loss and no more tears and no more sorrow. You see, our new resurrection bodies, they won't break down, they won't decay, they won't, they won't be corruptible, they will indeed last forever. They'll be imperishable, immortal. You see, the hope of the resurrection is that the enemy of death, it doesn't win in the end. That, that death doesn't get the final word, that Jesus does. And that all those who by faith in Jesus and in his resurrection, they will one day get to see death be put to death. In the end, death will not win. Jesus does. And our bodies will go from being perishable and finite to being imperishable, eternal, immortal. But it's not just that our new bodies won't wear out, but that they will be altogether better than the ones we have now. He goes on in verse 43 to highlight that while our current bodies are sown in dishonor, he's talking here about corruption and sin and death. He says our resurrected bodies will be raised in glory. Philippians chapter 3.20 says that, that Jesus himself will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious resurrected one. No longer will we be, will we be marred by sin and guilt and shame. Instead, our new bodies will be altogether glorious, honorable, praiseworthy, beautiful. We cannot even imagine what they will be like. But if the fact that in Scripture, when anyone even meets even an angel, the response is always fear or face-down worship, I think that that will at least tell us that our glorious resurrection bodies are going to be a lot more than the six-pack abs you have always been dreaming of. 
C.S. Lewis, he once wrote, he wrote it like this. He said, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship. Our new resurrection bodies will be glorious, and we cannot even begin to imagine how beautiful and wondrous they will be. Additionally, instead of being characterized by weakness, Paul says that our new bodies will be characterized by power. The word power here isn't speaking about strength, but about capability. The new body we'll have will not only have a new glorious status, but a new empowered capability that this one does not have, namely the capability to finally overcome sin and to be, finally be, the, be able to be the image-bearing, glory-reflecting people that God has made us to be and called us to be. We will finally be able to be the thing God has made us to be, to be his image-bearing people. We will finally be capable of it fully. But it's not merely that we'll be capable of it. We see, uh, we see the fourth way, Paul says, is that we will go from being natural to spiritual. Paul's not saying that we'll go from being physical to spiritual. That would, again, undermine everything he's already said. Instead, the transformation, he says, is from the natural to the spiritual. He says, we'll go from being like the first man, Adam, corrupted and, and stained by sin and death, to being like the second man, the man from heaven. He's talking about Jesus. See, at the heart of what it means for our new bodies to be spiritual is that they will be inf infused and recreated by the life-giving spirit of Jesus himself. Verse 45 says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. You see, you and I, by faith in Jesus, we will be made new and transformed by the life-giving power of Jesus himself. Colossians 1 says it's, that it was Jesus who created the universe. That is he who holds it together. And so like his body, we will be enlivened by the Spirit of God. At the very core of our being, we will be aligned with the very Spirit of God. We'll be a Spirit-built people. It'll no longer be a fight to obey God and to follow him. It will be the most natural thing in all the world. I don't know about you, but that is such good news to me. Sin sucks, and it is so hard to overcome. But one day, it won't even be a battle anymore. One day, the most natural default position of our existence will to have our, be have our hearts and our minds and our bodies aligned perfectly with the very Spirit of God. Oh, that's such good news.
You see, the whole point of this qualitative transformation is about enabling us to finally be and to do what God made us to be and to do, to be God's image-bearing, glory-reflecting people. Verse 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so then shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. The heavenly man, again, is indeed the very image of God. Colossians chapter 1, 15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3 tells tells us that he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus was the perfect image of God, and our resurrection transformation is ultimately about enabling us to be like him and to be the people that he showed us that we were made to be, God's image-bearing, glory-reflecting people. And so our eternal hope is that we will be conformed, that we will be transformed not merely into some vague new image, but indeed into the image of Jesus, the true and perfect image of God, what we were always meant to be. You see, but Paul doesn't just tell us what our transformed bodies will be like. He reminds us of how that transformation is possible in the first place, and you cannot miss this this morning. Verse 54, he says, when... Not if, but when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, but thanks be to God for he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our victory over death and the reason we in our transformed body, Paul says, will sing songs that mock death is all because of Jesus. He won the battle. He overcame Satan and sin and death and then he gives us that victory. It's like when your favorite sports team wins the championship. They win it, and they win it for you, and you celebrate, and you enjoy that win as if it was your own. But you did nothing to earn it. It's this incredible thing. I realize you Minnesota sports fans don't really know what that's like, but the good news is is that when the resurrection comes, you will get to see it. You'll know what that feels like. Unfortunately, probably not until then, but in the end, you will. In all seriousness, though, this is the very heart of the good news of the gospel. It's because of Jesus, because of his victory, because of all that he has done, that you and I can have a victory over death in the end. Stephen, one commentator, he just so beautifully writes, He says, the man of heaven took on a body of dust in order that the people, this is going to be hard. (laughs) The man of heaven, he says, took on the body of dust in order that people who are made of dust might take on a heavenly body. The imperishable became perishable so that the perishable might become imperishable. Jesus, the glorious one, experienced dishonor so that the dishonorable might experience glory. Jesus, the powerful one, became weak so that the weak 
might become powerful. Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death so that those who deserve death might experience new life. Jesus, the man of heaven, made himself a son of man so that the sons of Adam might become children of heaven. Jesus did what you and I could not. He perfectly reflected the image of God. He took away the power of sin by being all that we were made to be and by fulfilling the law on our behalf. And so our victory is assured because the thing that caused death from the very beginning, namely sin, it has already been dealt with by Jesus himself. He became all that we were intended to be so that we might become it in him. Do you see the good news of the gospel? Do you see how what Jesus did changes everything? You see what he did not only changes our future reality, it changes our present reality as well. Paul says, because Jesus has already given you the victory over death, he says, verse 58, so therefore stand firm. And let nothing, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know your labor in him is not in vain. You see, it's in light of Jesus' victory over death that you and I not only have a secure hope for one day victoriously overcoming death, but that we can live a victorious resurrection life today. See, our motivation for steadfastness is not our own winning, but is already the victory of Jesus. And there's nothing that you and I can or need to do to defeat death. Jesus has already done it for us. All that is left for us to do is by faith put our hope in him. And saving faith is always changing faith. Saving faith is always faith that transforms our actual lives. One pastor describes faith this way. He says, hope. Hope is hearing the music of the future, but faith is dancing to that music today. Hope is, again, it's hearing the music of the future. Faith is dancing to that music now, today. You see, as you hear the hope of the resurrection future, the invitation is that you might live in light of that resurrection hope now. We should live our lives in the present with hearts that are captured by the hope of the future. Stephen Um, again, he writes this, this victory and imperishable life is not something that we will possess only in the future. For we already have it now as an inheritance in Christ. If we already know that the life has already been won, if death has already been defeated, if life has been secured, if it has already been given to us, then we can walk forward with great confidence and joy and in victory. There's this amazing line in Psalm 112. In verses 6 through 8, it reads this way, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They won't be moved. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast. They, because they trust in the Lord, 
their hearts are secure, and they will have no fear, for in the end they will look in triumph on their foes. You see, there are so many days when we wake up hoping or afraid that we will get bad news. But the hope of the resurrection is that even in the midst of bad news, even in the midst of heartache, even in the face of death itself, we can have a transformative hope that enables us to live lives of victory and unafraid today. You see, our, over our ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death because Jesus is our righteousness and he has already conquered our enemies for us. And that even though we might physically die, that's not the end of the story. You see, death does not have the last word for those who by faith belong to Jesus. You see, the way that God's righteous people are going to have a victorious life now is when you know that Jesus wins in the end. When you know that he overcomes Satan and sin and death and that he is victorious in the end. And so you can live today in the face of all the things that make our world radically afraid and you can live with hope and you can live with joy and you can live with confidence. Jesus wins and he is victorious and he wins and gives us his victory. You see, and the good news is not only that we live victorious lives today, but that the lives we live unto God will matter for eternity. You see, there is this underlying continuity, as we talked about, between the present bodily life and the future one that gives us a meaning and direction and a, to our present Christian living. You see, the reminder this morning is that what we do in these bodies matters. It matters for eternity. And so Paul says, always then, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Not half-heartedly, not partially, not sometimes. He says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know it's not in vain. Jesus wins. The victory is secure. And so you can give yourself to him knowing that you win in the end. And that we'll all, everything will be worth it. Church, might we live like that. See, Paul's reminding them and us that the resurrection is a reminder that what we do in this life and in these bodies, it matters for eternity. And what Jesus did in his body mattered. That's what we're remembering and celebrating when we take communion. We're, we're reminding ourselves and celebrating that in Jesus' physical life and death and resurrection, that God overcomes the curse of sin and death. And that while we were once slaves to sin, we're now in Christ. We are set free to live in light of him and to be his image-bearing people both now and forever. And so the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life that we did not. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us as he paid the price for all the ways that we have failed to live in the image of God. But he didn't stay dead. He overcame death and he empowers us to do the same today and forever. Communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. The Bible is clear that there's one thing that saves you. There is one thing that makes you right with God. And it's when by faith you put your hope in Jesus' work on your behalf. 
And so if you're here today and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, I just need, to, I need you to know you are so welcome here. You are so welcome in our community and in this people. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, communion is about celebrating and remembering the relationship we have with God because of faith in his death on our behalf. And I don't want you to just go through some motions, just go through some actions. Instead, my hope and my prayer is that you might take hold of Jesus by faith this morning. And communion might not be right for you, but Jesus is. And faith in him is the one thing that can save you. And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, or if you have done so for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you, take communion with us. If you miss the elements on the way in, you can find them on a table in the back on the left and on the right. And as we worship, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Thank him for the victory he has secured for you, or for the first time by faith, receive the victory that he has won on your behalf so that you might actually be able to live with a hope for the future that transforms your life today. See, the promise of the resurrection, it calls us to live today in light of eternity that is only possible when you have the hope of Jesus. I want to close this morning just by leaving you with the, the words from the, from the epitaph that's written on Ben Franklin's tomb. Now, the man and his life and his faith are certainly complicated, and it is actually pretty unclear what he actually believed about Jesus and the resurrection. But the words on him, his tombstone, they speak clearly to the transformational reality of the resurrection hope we have. He says this way, This body, like the cover of an old book, with its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, it lies here, food for worms. But the work will not be lost for it will appear once more in a new and more glorious edition. Revised and corrected by the author. You see, that's the hope that we have because of Jesus. That although we might die, our bodies will one day be resurrected and they will not merely be the same, not merely resuscitated, reassembled versions of ourselves, but resurrected ones, transformed ones, revised and corrected by the author himself. See, that's the hope that we have. And might that transformational hope shape our lives today. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you this morning so grateful that we get to worship you, not because we deserve to, or not because we have earned some incredible victory for ourselves, but because, Jesus, you have on our behalf. You, you became all that we were supposed to be, and you did it for us. And you suffered our dishonor. And you bore our shame. And you took on our guilt so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and be ultimately transformed and made new like you. And so Jesus, might you empower us to live new lives now. Might our lives be altogether different today 
because of the hope that we have in you, our victorious, resurrected King. Jesus, we need you now. Enable us, empower us, give us hope so that we might live for your glory today as a rehearsal for the rest of eternity. And God, we pray this for our good and for the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our families. And ultimately so that you might get all of the glory, both now and forever, Jesus. Amen.